All right, so here's the question I'd like to start out with. And um, I've been asking for responses, but this one I'm just going to ask you to write it down. I think this will be more helpful. What did you do yesterday? What did you do yesterday? Maybe write down one or two or three things that you did. They don't have to be significant. It could be like a trip you took, an errand you did. I don't see anybody writing. Um, yeah, what did you do yesterday? Try <laughs> I was going to ask you about some bigger amount of time, but we're just going to start easy. We're just going to start with yesterday, all right? Can you guys remember yesterday pretty well? What did you do yesterday? Write down a couple things. Now it gets harder. What did you say yesterday? Anybody remember anything you said? I mean, it doesn't have to be significant. It could be maybe you're like, okay, I know I had a conversation with this person Maybe there was some statement that you made that does stand out. You could write that down. Uh, what'd you do yesterday? What'd you say yesterday? Here's where I'm, th I'm thinking this. I'm thinking that we could start with something that you did yesterday. We could start with something that you said yesterday, and we could kind of like draw a circle around it, and then with a series of questions, we could probably work ourselves backwards, and we could discover some pretty powerful things about you, right? We could start with just something little that you did yesterday, something little that you said yesterday, and with a series of questions, we could work our way back, and we could discover all kinds of really important things about you that would ultimately reveal who you are. If you drew a circle around just one part of yesterday, I bet you could draw lines from that circle to a whole lot of other things that are important, relationships, uh, values that you, that you hold, uh, responsibilities that you carry, realities that are a part of your life. I bet you could circle. I just, all I did was drive to that, that place. But I bet you could draw a line from that circle to a relationship that matters, a purpose behind that, the, behind that trip, a hope that is ultimately uh, somewhere, somewhere behind that experience of yesterday. All kinds of realities that reveal something true about who you are. To some degree, what you did yesterday and what you said yesterday are simply a reflection of who you are, right? So typically, teachings about the sermons or teachings or sermons about the uh, life of Jesus focus on what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And this is, this is hugely important um, this is what we've gathered to learn. It's super significant to focus on what Jesus said, what Jesus did. For a few weeks in this season called Epiphany, this season between Christmas and Lent, we're going to dig into the earliest stories of the life of Jesus in order to discover more about who Jesus was, who Jesus is, all right? Before we get to all the stuff he said and all the stuff he did. So the series is called Roots and Revelation, and I'm hoping that by looking at just the very few stories that exist about Jesus's infancy and his early childhood will help us to understand and ultimately respond better to what he said and what he did in his three-year ministry, <clears throat> which began, of course, in his baptism. Two weeks ago at Christmas, or three, we focused on his birth. Last week, we focused on his baptism. And then in the few weeks that are coming, we're going to talk about the stories that land in between those two big events in the life of Jesus, in between his birth and in between his baptism. The season's called Epiphany. So let's look at Luke chapter 2 together. 
You may be familiar with the first half of Luke chapter 2. We often read this around Christmas time. The first part of Luke chapter 2 is where we find a lot of familiar stories about Mary and Joseph. She gets pregnant. They travel to Bethlehem. The government's requiring that they participate in a census. They got to go even though she's pregnant. There's no place for them to stay because everybody's going to Bethlehem. They end up having to sleep in a barn. She gives birth there. Remember this story? Uh, shepherds, meanwhile, on the field, at, you know, out on some field, angels appear to them, deliver this news that the Messiah has been born. They go, they find um, this baby in this barn, right? And Luke wraps up that first section of the chapter with these words. He says, but Mary treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. All right, so that's the story of Jesus' birthday. Next, Luke, who is the author of this gospel, he skips to day eight in the life of Jesus, and then he skips to day 40. So let's look at those two days, those two scenes that are the next scenes that that Luke describes because they contain events in the life of Jesus that are absolutely critical to who Jesus is. In other words, these stories form some of the roots uh, to the life of Christ that will inform and shape a lot of what he does and a lot of what he says. And his teachings and his actions will be more significant and meaningful to us if we get a deeper sense of where he's coming from, right? So uh, this is where we're going, and here's, here's our plan. We're going to talk about what happens in these two days, day eight and day 40, what happens. We're going to talk just really briefly about why they happen, those things happen, because we could write a book about why they happen. So I'll try to be really brief about why they happen. And then I'm going to offer one observation about how they happen, all right? Here we go. First, What happens on days eight and day 40 of uh, Jesus's life? A whole lot of stuff happens probably, but three big things stand out. On day eight, um, Mary's baby is circumcised. Also on day eight, he is named Jesus. And then on day 40, Jesus, this baby boy, is presented to the Lord at the temple in Jerusalem. There was only one that was in Jerusalem. So here's what Luke writes starting with Luke chapter 2, verse 21. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. That's all you get about day eight, one sentence. He's circumcised and he's named. And now we get to day 40, verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites, Required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. A lot of Jewish culture there. Parentheses, Luke writes, because he's not Jewish and he assumes that not everybody reading his gospel is Jewish. So he explains something in verse 23. As it is written in the law of the Lord... And there he's referring to the first five books of the Bible, the, the law of Moses, the books of Moses, the law of God, it's all synonymous. Matthew, I mean, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, those kinds of things. So he's, as is written there, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord or given to the Lord. That's out of Exodus 13. So they go there to present Jesus to the Lord and, verse 24, to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or young pigeons. Okay, so that's 
what happens. Got it? Those are the events. That's what happens. Now, why do these things happen? Uh, a couple of sentences or thoughts about the significance of these things. They are all connected to something else, just like what you did yesterday is connected to other things. Everything you did yesterday is connected to something else. You can draw a line from what you said yesterday to something else. You can draw a line from what you did yesterday to something else, probably something bigger. I drove to this place to for, for not just randomly, but to pick up my child. Well, that's a big deal. That reveals something, right? Or I bought this item, not just because I just happened to come up, but because it was part of a project that I'm working on. And I, need to, I needed this thing in order to do something to accomplish something bigger. And there's all kinds of reasons behind why I'm working on this thing. Or I talked to this person. I could have talked to anybody, but I talked to this person because they are, you know, they're in my neighborhood, Right? So we live in the same space. So every little thing I did, you can, there's something bigger behind it. There's something more significant behind it. There's a reason. There's a relationship. Life doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it's the same with Jesus. So what happens? Well, he's circumcised. Why does that happen? Well, it's a sign that is given by God to Abraham way back in Genesis 17 as a promise, that's the first book in the Bible, as a promise that Abraham is given from God that Abraham, who is 99 and doesn't have any kids, is going to be the father of this big, big nation. So he's 99 years old. He's given this as a sign of God's promise. God just doesn't give him a promise. He gives him a sign of the promise. And it's not just for Abraham, and it is for him at 99 years old, but it's also for all the male descendants that he will ever have, grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. And this is the sign, circumcision is the sign that they are sons of Abraham, that they are members of the Jewish race. It's not just some meaningless or medical procedure. It's not some routine. It is deeply significant spiritually. Sometimes I wonder if Abraham wished God would have chosen another sign for that, right? Like a handshake or a tattoo or something. Could we just figure something else out? Uh, but this experience matters for Abraham. It matters for any Jewish man because this is the sign of who they are. And this is important for Jesus. This experience matters for Jesus because all of the prophecies say that the Messiah will come from within the Jewish race. Right? And this might sound kind of insignificant. Yeah, on the eighth day, he was circumcised. But Jesus is fulfilling a specific story. Right? He is the fulfillment of a specific story that's been, it has been told for a couple of thousand years. And it's the story of God revealing himself to the world through a specific people. And so when God becomes human, he can't just enter into humanity generally. You got to enter into humanity very specifically, and this is what he does. He enters into humanity specifically as a member of a specific race, and he's marked as a member of that race. He's circumcised. Right? Jesus, in other words, is not just going to come to associate with the Jews. He's not just going to come to sort of generally empathize with their struggle. He's going to fully enter into their culture, their dynamics, the prejudices, the challenges. He's all in. There's nothing about this that is pretend. It is fully and complete incarnation. I'm going to be completely one of you, not just in general humanity, but this, even this specific part of humanity, even this specific race, right? Complete um, incarnation, complete entering in. This is always how we experience truth. 
I would say it's always how we experience truth, whether it's the truth of love or the truth of goodness or the truth of pain or the truth of restoration. It's never in these big generalities. We believe in love as this general thing, but we experience it specifically, right, with people with names. That's how we experience love. We, we, we may embrace this idea of, of uh, some sort of truth, but we experience truth through actual encounters with real specific people. This is the difference between a theory and a real experience. It's the specificity that makes it real in our experience. You could say, yeah, I, I understand pain. Well, you do if you've experienced it. And, and that's what you'll talk about is your encounter with pain. Right? So if God's going to experience humanity personally, he's got to actually become, and it's got to be so specific that we're talking about really, really detailed engagement here. That's what makes it real. So day eight, Jesus is circumcised. That's a little bit about why. He's also named. Why does, why does that matter? Well, names declare the truth, right? Uh, especially in association with identity, especially in association with purpose, we understand names pretty well. It's, it's difficult to overstate the importance of names in the Bible. Places, the stories of places are told in their names. The stories of people are told in their names. When people change, they change their name. The only time we kind of experience that in our culture is marriage. I was just talking to somebody, right? We, sometimes we still will change our names to represent a, a big change in life like marriage. Jesus is the anglicized or the English version of the Hebrew name Yeshua. And do you know what it means? It means God saves. That's what his name means. So he's named Jesus. He's named Yeshua. In English, we say Jesus because it means God saves. Well, it, it, the reason he was named that is because Luke reveals that the angel told Mary, this is what you're going to name the baby before, he's even, before she's even uh, pregnant, before she even conceives. And on the day, day eight, when all Jewish boys receive their name, Jesus receives, Mary's baby, I should say, receives this name, Jesus. Uh, Mary says, this is his name. It's the name that God gives. It means God saves. So it, it matters. It's just, that's pretty easy to understand the significance of, of why that matters. And then on day 40, Jesus is presented in the temple at Jerusalem, and there are two parts of this experience. One part has to do with the baby. One part has to do with the mom. So um, the baby has to be presented because he's the firstborn son. So in that culture, he's got to be presented to the Lord, given back to God. This is out of Exodus, the Exodus story, uh, Exodus 13. You can read about it. You didn't actually give your son back to God. Other cultures probably did. But in the Jewish culture, you gave a gift, an offering to God in recognition that this first son was a gift to you, right? In recognition that your child was a gift. So the, the culture and the, and the tradition was to consecrate your son by offering a gift or an offering back to the Lord. I mean, really specifically, you're actually giving the gift to the priest, right? Because it's specific, because the priest represents the Lord. So that's the first part of that day 40 ritual. The second thing has to do with the mother's return to temple worship after the experience of childbirth. That's why it's 40 days for her in this situation. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph, they do a couple things. They make a trip to Jerusalem for this act of dedicating Jesus uh, to God. 
And then Luke points out that they offer a specific offering, and their offering is it's two doves, it's two pigeons or doves, which is specifically the poor person's offering. There were a variety of offerings you could, you could present, but there was an allowance made for those who were especially poor to just buy a couple of birds, and that's what they do. See, draw a circle around it. You can draw that circle back, and you can learn something really important. So if you circle these events, like day eight, day 40, you could draw lines to beliefs. You could draw lines to values. You could draw lines to family realities and dynamics. You could draw lines to economic realities, to financial condition. So Luke is relaying these earliest events of Jesus's life because they reveal some of the most basic things that are true about Jesus. Right? These are the things they reveal. They reveal something about his race or his religion. When you consider this remarkable claim that Luke makes, which is that God becomes a human being, this baby's actually God in the flesh, it is incredible how deeply and specifically he enters into humanity. He's born, as I said, into a specific race, and he's marked as one of those people in that race. This reveals something about his purpose. It's no mystery what's being communicated by his name. Often we are named things that kind of reflect the truth about God. He's actually named Jesus saves, or God saves, right? This is actually his calling. This is his purpose, just given to him as a name. Okay, so he ever wonders what, what, his, what his job is, that's it. It's, it's in his name. And this reveals something about his family also. They're devout, they're committed. They're traditional Jews, they're poor people, right? So on one hand, what happens to Jesus up to this point is pretty much what happens to every Jewish boy when he's eight days old, 40 days old. Uh, at first, he's just, it seems like they're just doing really basic things. Like for the first few minutes of the story, it's just the ordinary. There's a lot of kids circumcised that day, a lot of kids named that day, on day 40, there's probably a lot of kids. I mean, all the kids, all the firstborn sons are being dedicated back to the Lord. All right, but then something else happens. We go from very ordinary to extraordinary. There's going to be two more people that enter into this story. While Mary and Joseph are moving through the temple, which is like a big church with a big courtyard surrounded by these walls. So there's a lot of stuff happening. And as they're moving through this, they're approached by a man and a woman. And what those two do and what those two say about the baby begin to reveal much more about who he is. Luke wants us to know this. This is, where, this is um, how he writes it. Back to Gospel Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 25. Here's the story. Here's how it continues. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. He was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, or like the healing of Israel. Because remember, Israel is under the, the control of the Roman government. They're being taxed like crazy. They have no rights. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. 
For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation for the Gentiles. That's huge, right? And glory for your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, and this is brutal, the child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, a tribe of Asher. She was very old. She lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshiped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God, and she spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, which is like a county, to their own town, Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. All right, big section, big story. But in a few sentences, about just a couple of days and a couple of events, we're given this powerful picture about who Jesus is and what he's going to do. He's not even six weeks old yet, right? He hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't said anything yet. He hasn't healed anybody yet. And yet so much is happening. So much is being communicated. So much good is being done. The significance of what is happening is so deep here. And I think, so two things I want to say here. I think the reason that Luke records these things the main reason is because they happened, and they're important for us to know. I think that's the main reason. If I'm just teaching the Bible this morning, sometimes you teach something, and you're like, so believe this. Sometimes you teach something, and you're like, so do this. And sometimes you teach something, and you're like, so feel this way. I think, if, to be just honest here, these events are recorded so that we will just know them. We need to know them. They're important. They inform things yet to come. He's telling the story of Jesus, and he's setting up the main events of the story, the things that Jesus is going to say, Jesus is going to do. He's setting those events up with, with this. Um, and I think that's the main reason these events of day, days 8 and 40 are recorded. But I just want to also say this. I want to ask one more question to wrap this up. We've asked what happens. We've asked why does it happen. And, and I want to pause the story and step back from it a little bit, just long enough to draw our attention to how it happens. Because that's where the excitement is for me, I think, today. Uh, that's where the challenge is for me today. How does this happen? I think it's really important for us to see that Jesus is a baby, hasn't done anything yet, but the restoration of all things has already begun, right? The gospel of Jesus is going into the world through others, Right? I want to end by pausing and inviting you to, to recognize that all of this good stuff is beginning, and it is beginning to happen through others. The message of Jesus that he has come to heal the world is already being proclaimed by women and by men. Do you see that? Do you see all these other people that are part of this story? You see Jesus doing nothing? Right? You see Jesus just, he's just six weeks old? 
The spiritual and symbolic significance of Jesus being circumcised on the eighth day is critical to the story of his identity and his mission. It's critical. How does it happen? Others, others enable it to happen. Mary and Joseph are paying attention, right? We know the story that of their birth. She's just, delivered, she's just delivered a baby in less than ideal circumstances, i.e. a barn, no family around, and yet, they have no, and yet she, they're, they're aware enough, they're devoted enough, they are conscious enough that they're like, guess what? I don't know why I did this. They probably did it. They're like, hey, guess what? It's the eighth day. It's the eighth day. We need to get this boy of ours to wherever it was where they circumcise and where we can officially name him. They're paying attention, right? They, they arrange their life around this critical point in order to obey the law of the Lord. This has got to happen, and they're the only ones who can do it. They're the only ones. They're mom and dad. God's plan for his son is that he carry the name Jesus, which means God saves. And God communicates his plan to his messenger, this angel named Gabriel. But Mary must pronounce the name over Jesus when he's born, or actually on his eighth day, I guess. She, only she can do that. Her role is critical. Mary is almost an exception. Clearly, her role is so unique and critical. But it goes on and on and begins to include other people that I would say also play very important roles. Luke records these early events in Jesus's life, which must happen in order to build the foundation for the ministry that Jesus is about to engage in. And these events are critical, but so are the people who play the roles in the events. The events are critical. What I'm trying to say right now is so are the people. So are the people who are involved. Just as specific events are critical to God's plan to save the world through Jesus, specific people are critical to God's plan as well. And it's totally compelling to me. Apparently, as I read it, God's plan is to use flawed but faithful people like you and me. It was his plan then and it's his plan now. That's his plan. This is not plan B. This is his original plan. This is not because somebody else didn't do their job. This is not because Jesus couldn't make it, right? Jesus was, by definition, unable to participate in any real meaningful way, as we would describe it. He has chosen to come to the world in a way that is totally dependent on other people. I think that's totally compelling. Jesus has got to be presented to the Lord uh, with an offering on the 40th day. And that critical event is dependent upon the faithfulness and the devotion of several people. Mom, dad, unnamed priest, doing their jobs, right? Recognizing that this is not just some sort of, ah, maybe if we feel like it, but actually this, I play a critical role in the life of another. The son of God comes to earth as a human child, totally dependent on his parents. Their devotion to God matters, right? Their faithful obedience to their faith is critical in Jesus's life. That's kind of throwing it around a little bit from what we typically say, right? Typically say Jesus is critical to your life. And what kind of what I'm saying right now is there's examples where your faithfulness is critical in Jesus's life, right? In Jesus's mission. I guess I'm just struck by how part of God's plan to save the world is to partner with the very people he came to save, like you and me, 
and that we play a role, and that role is critical. I mean, put this in your pipe for a second. In about 30 years, Jesus is going to die for the sins of Joseph, his adopted dad, right? He's going to die for Joseph's sins. He's going to sacrifice himself to, to, to forgive the sins of Joseph. And part of what's going to qualify Jesus to make that sort of perfect sacrifice is Jesus' fulfillment of God's laws, which were made, in, were made possible in part by Joseph. When Jesus was eight days old, when Jesus was 40 days old, Joseph's faithfulness is part of the plan that ultimately ends up saving Joseph and the whole world, right? Even before Jesus preaches, Anna, this prophetess, is preaching to all who are in the temple courts that Jesus will bring redemption to Israel. I think she is the first person to connect the name Jesus and the word saves in a message. Shepherds understand that God sent his Messiah. Nobody knows his name yet. Anna says, his name is Jesus. He's going to save the world. Simeon is confirming what Mary was told by an angel. I don't know if that is such a searing experience when you encounter an angel that you'll never doubt, or if it's something that after a while you go, man, did, I really, did that really happen? But here comes Simeon, and he basically confirms everything the angel told Mary is true. Her baby is the Messiah. He's going to save not just the Jews. He's also going to save the non-Jews, the Gentiles, right? The whole world. And I think the earliest stories of Jesus are written because we need to know them. This is the foundation. They help us understand what's going to happen later. That's the main point of Luke chapter 2. But I'm also really challenged as I observe what others did. And I just circled the verbs. I just circled the verbs. What others did. Mary and Joseph took Jesus to Jerusalem. They presented Jesus to the Lord. They purchased doves. They offered them as a sacrifice. Simeon waited, and that was critical. Simeon responded to the movement of the Holy Spirit. Simeon took Jesus in his arms. Simeon praised God. Simeon blessed Mary. Anna gave thanks. Anna proclaimed the good news to all who were there. Jesus saves. So I'm challenged by the fact that God's design is to use regular people. God's design is to use the church to reveal Jesus and to restore the world. Yeah. Amen? Let me tell you quickly just a couple of stories. Like I, God's plan is to, is, to, uh, is to save people, is to enter into people's lives so that they have a relationship with Jesus. That's true. Do you know how it became true for me? Tim Hansen, super specific, really, really particular, right? God's plan is to grow us in our faith so we become more and more like him. That's his big, worldwide, universal, applies to everybody plan. Do you know how it actually attached to my life? Steve Scott, super specific. That's how it actually connected Right? God's plan is to heal people's souls, to redeem wounds, to, um, to restore brokenness, to engage in, in uh, pain, and to heal people. Do you know how that came true for me? Lyle Dorset. I'm telling you, people, that's who they were the delivery of these big, huge truths. It's got to be specific. There are others who are, in other words, partnering with what God is doing in order to. Make it real for the individual. 
Maybe you're looking for direction. Maybe you believe that God will guide and lead, and maybe he will do that as he has a few times in my life through some sort of mystical, spiritual sense of direction. More than that, more often than that, he does it through something really specific, and I'm not like out there looking for signs, but I'm just telling you that uh, there was a point in my life where I was, um, where I didn't know which way I should go, and there was a, a woman in Auburn, her name was Armida Martinez. She was about three and a half feet tall, and she was this beautiful little prayer warrior, and she said, you need to meet with this guy named Henrik Mann. I was a student in the Bay Area going to college. You need to meet with Henrik Mann. I didn't know who he was, but I respected Armida because she prayed for me. And so we, I was able to f- set up a meeting with this guy. The meeting lasted 25 minutes at a subway. I don't think I'd be able to recognize Henrik Mann if I saw him again. I never heard from him again. I never saw him again. I can't even tell you what he does. But he said to me, you, why are you at this school going to an intervarsity Bible study thinking that's going to sustain a life of ministry? If God's called you to ministry, go study theology at Wheaton College. And some it's God just used him. So it's like, it just made sense. I went home, I applied to a different college, right? That was just specific for me. But I'm trying to say is that God uses us, one another, in order to bring his love to people, in order to bring his salvation to people. Here's the point this morning. You play a role in Jesus's plan. And the role that you play is critical. It's critical. It is not optional. It's not bonus. You're not on the third string. Okay? You play a critical role. Amen. Amen. So let's pray together. So, Lord, I just want to ask you for grace to see where you've placed us, who you've placed us in life with. There are several people for whom whom we are the only one. We are the only dad. We are the only brother. We are the only spouse. We might be the only friend. And then there are all kinds of other relationships. And yeah, we're one of many. But maybe you've got a a role for us to play. And, And I pray that we would be tuned in enough to see more of our life as important and critical from a spiritual standpoint. And I pray that the parts of our life that have become routine, like driving to work and going to work or going to school or to shopping, that we just, have a, we just have a different perspective this week and that we would just be open to the beauty and the sacred nature of relationship And the idea that you want to bring restoration to the whole world and you might use us in that way. Somehow, you you will use us. Maybe we don't even say anything. Maybe we just act in obedience. So I just pray for grace, Lord. Uh, Keep us from slipping into a view of our faith that somehow renders us as unimportant and kind of passively spectating. May we participate, believing that we're part of this game, and uh, our faithfulness to you has real ramifications. So, Lord, I pray for your grace as we engage our faith, engage you, Lord, this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.